I want to share something that God has brought back to my attention as we were singing that song. And even as I was praying the transition, just that idea that Jesus is coming soon. How many of you have heard that like so much in your life? Like, Jesus is coming soon. And you're like, okay, if he's coming soon, like, when is he actually coming? Because I keep, I've heard soon now, and I heard soon five years ago, and I heard soon ten years ago. Like, what is soon? I want to just throw something out there. How many of you know that, like, your lifespan in comparison to all of human history is relatively small? Yes. Okay. So when we say soon, you say, well, 20 years, like, that's a long time. There's a lot of things I can do in 20 years. But in 20 years since Jesus has been walking on the, on the planet, 20 years is actually a relatively small amount of time. As we've walked through in the last couple of years the book of Revelation and walked through the book of Daniel, we've talked a lot of these different biblical prophecies and things that have to happen. One of the big things that has to happen in the book of Revelation is there has to be a third temple. There, there's no third temple. There's no sacrificial system that the Jews start back up again. If there's no sacrificial system that the Jews start back up again, then the Antichrist can't walk into uh, that temple halfway through and uh, be able to disrupt that uh, sacrifice, sacrificial system. And in order to put that back into place, they have to have priests that are trained and they have to have artifacts that are prepared and presented. And one of the biggest things that they need is a red heifer. How many of you have ever heard of a red heifer before? Okay. How many of you know that a red heifer has not been born in Israel in over 1900 years? Basically, at the time of the Second Temple's destruction by the Roman Empire, the very thing that's needed in order to uh, sanctify a new temple has not existed, almost to the point of going extinct. Except that there's something interesting in the news that you won't see on Fox and MSNBC and CNN and all the alphabet uh, stations. Uh, there's five red heifers that are without spot or blemish right now that are in Israel that were born in Israel. By the way, they've already trained 500 uh, individuals that are of proper Jewish descent that are from the tribe of Levi. By the way, they've already rebuilt most of the artifacts needed. They just have to reconstruct the temple and they're ready to go. So here's the thing, when someone says, well, we don't know the day or the hour that Jesus comes back, he's coming soon. And there's a significant chance, like, now there's a lot of things that can disqualify those red heifers, but this is the first time they've existed born in Israel in over 1900 years. I don't know, you tell me. So when we get to this topic of our series right now, of a spirit-filled disciple, what are the traits of a spirit-filled disciple? And two weeks ago we talked about we have to study God's word because this, and we're going to really get into this next week. This is the word of God. Amen. All right. The word of God, when we look at John 1, 1, says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then it goes on to say that the word became flesh. Jesus Christ is the personification of the word of God. I won't even throw this out there because this is one of those things I hear a lot of times. Well, Jesus never said this about that topic. Let me encourage you with something here for a moment. Jesus, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one, all the same, right? So it doesn't matter if it's in red letters or black letters, it was breathed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Backed up by Jesus, who is the personification of the word, said by God the Father. So if it's in here, it's truth. So we need to know God's word for ourselves. You can't just come in here and say, well, 
I go to church and my pastor preaches the word. No, you got to be spending time in God's word for yourself because you have to be able to defend your own faith because I'm not going to be there with you every single place you go every single day. You don't get to like open some device in your back pocket and say, well, here's Pastor Scott. He's going to answer that for you. You got to be able to do that for yourself. And so then last week we talked about serving in the church and how it looks different for everyone. That there's some people that are gifted with different talents and abilities. Let's do a quick poll. How many of you are glad that I don't ask you to come up and sing on the stage with a microphone in your hand? All right. That's a lot of you. Because that's not your gifting. That's not how God designed you. That's not how God made you. But there's things that you can do that other people in the room would not want to do. Let's do another quick poll. How many of you are glad that you don't have to get up on stage and talk in front of people every single week? Katie Owens is Katie, I'm going to have to, no, I'm <laughs> But this, this is one of those things, like, Katie and I and the worship team were joking before service about this, that it's like, she can sing in front of people, but she doesn't like speaking in front of people. And I'm probably making her uncomfortable by the very thing that I'm doing right now, but if you put a microphone in my hand and said, now sing, I'm going to probably feel equally uncomfortable. But God gave us all different abilities, and we have to find the area that God has called us to serve and to dive into that area and to go all out serving to advance the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And so then today we're going to talk about the idea of worshiping in freedom. Now I want to say something that could offend you and it could challenge you. Or you might say, I totally agree. Now if you're offended, please know that my heart today by saying this is not to offend you, but I want to get you to think. I want to challenge you and maybe push you a little bit. Maybe step on your toes a little bit. But know this, that hearing this, this is all for the purpose of growing you closer to God. How many of you know that sometimes being pushed closer to God is a good thing, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. All right, so here's the thought, that traditional worship and singing may not be your thing. You may not like jumping up and down. You may say, well, I don't like raising my hands. I, I don't like singing loud. For, like, I'm not Buddy the Elf. I don't like singing loud for all to hear. <laughs> But I was, the way I was raised, the way I've grown up, my personality, I don't like raising my hands, but when I sing, my mind, my heart, everything is completely engaged and connected with God, and I'm having this powerful worship experience. And that might be you, but you also might be saying, I don't like raising my hands because I'm afraid of what that person on the other side of the room is thinking about me. Let me encourage you with something today. If that is a thought that's in your mind, not, I'm not going to raise my hands because the way God has me connect with him is different. This is a, I don't want to raise my hands because the person on the other side of the room might think something about me. What, they're going to think you're a Christian and you're in church on Sunday at 1030? They already probably think you're a Christian because you're in church at 1030 on Sunday. <laughs> How are we going to make a difference of going out and serving people with the word of God if we can't even worship God in the house of God? So you might have to get free in your worship, but let me just throw something else out there. You've all seen it before. The person that they jump up and down, they run around the room, they wave flags, they sing loud, they sing off key, they sing proudly off key, and they look, wow, they are engaging with God the Father right now. And they very well could be. They also might be intentionally making a spectacle of themselves because they feel bad about all the things that they did the past week because they don't engage with God during the week. And so they're trying to make up for everything that they did wrong during the week through a 30-minute worship experience. And then, in the midst of doing that, then they leave and they go back to living the same way. Mm-hmm. That they pers- uh, put their personality out as one thing here, but they live completely different through the course of the rest of the week. That doesn't work either. Mm-hmm. 
So let me just encourage you today that I need you to worship the way God calls you to worship. And it might look different this week than it does next week. But when the Holy Spirit prompts you, like, I'm, I want you to jump up and down, what will people think? Who cares what they think? If you're not worshiping for what they think, you're worshiping for an audience of one, God the Father. It's not about you. It's not about them. It's about God the Father. Because there's going to be a day coming where we're in the throne room of God and we're singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you're not going to be worried about the person to the left or the right of you. And you're not going to be worried to say, well, it's, it's not dark enough in here. I can't raise my hands unless it's dark enough in the room. Because when it's dark enough in the room, then they can't see me raising my hands. You're going to be standing in the presence of Almighty God of the universe, who, by the way, there will be no sun, according to Revelation, in the new heavens and new earth, because God will be the sun. He will be that light. So it's going to be pretty bright. Yeah. So you better get comfortable, raise your hands and worship when the lights are on, when the lights are off, when you're ready, when you're not ready, because we're going to be all about lifting up the name of God. Amen? Amen. All right. You can't tell I'm ready for today. Uh, I want you to go ahead and repeat after me. Heavenly Father, your word is written in my mind and hidden in my heart. Your word is a lamp onto my feet and the light onto my path. I will seek you with all of my strength. My greatest desire is to be a disciple and to make more disciples. I will live my life according to your word. Your word, O oh Lord, is eternal. As we get going, I want you to watch this. It's about a three-minute video of what is worship, so go ahead and look up at this video. Sir Isaac Newton's famous third law of motion states that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. What this means in physics is that any time two objects interact with each other, there are always two opposite forces at play. If person A pushes against a wall, let's say, the wall is pushing back on the person with an equal force in the opposite direction. When a gun fires a bullet, the force pushing backwards makes the gun recoil, and so on. Newton's third law is sometimes called the action-reaction law, and it actually provides us with an unexpected image for one of the most central acts of the Christian life, the act of worship. Of course, most Christians would agree that worship is right at the heart of a thriving life with God. But what's harder to get agreement on is what exactly worship is. If you were to ask a dozen Christians to define it, you'd probably get a dozen different answers. Some would talk about singing songs to Jesus. Some would talk about taking part in the traditional ceremonies of the church, like communion and baptism. Others would talk about their quiet times of prayer at home. So which of these definitions is right? Well, maybe it would help if we looked at a couple of key passages in the Bible where people actually are worshiping God to see if we can't detect a pattern. One of the central stories in the Bible, for instance, is about how God rescued the people of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. Right at the start of the story, it says that God heard the people groaning in slavery, so he sends Moses to tell them that he's going to help. And it says that when the people heard that the Lord was going to help them, they bowed their heads and worshiped. God acted and the people responded. Well, the same pattern is there in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, it tells how Peter met Jesus for the first time. Peter's been fishing all night but caught nothing. Along comes Jesus, who tells Peter to cast his net into the deep water. And when he does, the catch of fish is so huge that they need another boat to help them bring it in. And then it says, when Peter sees it, he falls on his knees and says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. 
Or how about this one? After Jesus' resurrection, doubting Thomas is, well, doubting. The resurrected Jesus suddenly appears to him and tells him to put his fingers in his wounds. And it's when Thomas sees the nail holes of the cross, that's when he says, my Lord and my God. This revelation and response pattern is pretty consistent in the Bible. Worship generally starts with God showing himself in some particular way, and when the people see God at work, they respond accordingly. Worship, you might say, is sort of like the action-reaction law of the Christian life, where every action of God, saving, healing, convicting, helping, and so on, can elicit and does elicit a reaction from us. It's not an equal reaction, of course, but when it's the appropriate reaction for whatever the particular way is that God has revealed himself, that's when we're worshiping. This revelation can happen in all sorts of ways. Hearing the story of Jesus and realizing how much God loves us. Reading something in the Bible that puts its finger on something that we're going through right now. Working among the poor and the marginalized and discovering the presence of Jesus there. And worship is our appropriate reactions to these particular actions of God, whatever they may be. It may be raising our hands and singing our hearts out. It may be sitting in overwhelmed silence. It may even mean a drastic overhaul of our lives. But however it happens, in that response, we'll be discovering what the Bible meant when it tells us to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. I love that imagery of the, the pushing against the wall because I think most of us at some point in time in our life, we have experienced something, we've done something where I'm practicing, I'm working, I'm trying to improve in this, and I feel like I'm just like beating my head against the wall, and it's not going anywhere. Has, has that been anybody? Yes. Now, when I was in college, I was a music education major, and I would have uh, all of this time I was supposed to be practicing uh, my saxophone, and I remember feeling like I would go months with like no real improvement. And then I would have these weekly lessons with my professor, we would have uh, quartet practice, like, I was constantly, like probably at some points, playing my saxophone for four or five hours a day. It feels like I'm not going anywhere, nothing's getting better. My professor would have someone come in and do a master class with us, say one thing slightly different. And then all of a sudden it's like it unlocks this like level in my mind of I get this now, and all of this practice, all of this hard work that I've been putting in, like I'm wasting time, I'm wasting time, that all of a sudden it's just this explosion of growth. And this is kind of this imagery within Christianity, is that when we start our walk with God, it feels like everything is improving and everything is getting better very, very rapidly. And then all of a sudden, I, I hit this moment of nothing's happening. Nothing's growing, nothing's moving forward, nothing's progressing. But is it? Just because you don't see it constantly in that moment doesn't mean it's not happening. Mm -hmm. But here's the, the thing that I want to encourage you with, with this idea today, is God's engaged and ready to push back. But it doesn't matter, like, Pastor Parker, come up here for a second. He doesn't know that I just asked him to come up here, so he has no idea what I'm about to do. Now, Pastor Parker, I'm ready to push you. I'm ready. I'm waiting on you. See, like, I'm fully engaged, but, like, no, notice something here. He's tentatively waiting for me to do something to him. I'm fully ready, prepared, but he's not engaging me. Now, a lot of times what we think, especially when someone walks into the church for the very first time, they're like, well, there's going to be a lightning bolt. There's going to be this. There's going to be that. They're waiting for, for God who's ready to push and just do one of those. <laughs> That's not God. No, 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 no. Say. 
This is, this is why you're on staff. <laughs> That's not how God operates. I want you to push me. For real? For real, push me. <laughs> Okay, that's all you got? You're gonna quit that easy? I'm really uncomfortable. <laughs> now here's the thing is, he's trying and he's doing one of these where it's like, man, it didn't work, shucks. Now I want you to prepare like you're gonna push me, just, just like I was just stand here. The idea is this, is if I push into him, he's pushing back, and this is exactly how God operates. He's waiting for you to show up. He's going to match your level. He's going to push back, but he's not trying to shove you down. Yeah. He's trying to bring you back to him. You have to see. <laughs> it's even this idea when we think of lifting weights, that when there's a, an action and there's a reaction, you say like, well, I want to have bigger muscles. Well, then pick things up and put them down. <laughs> Like, I don't know what to tell you. You can't just say like, well, I wanna, I wanna have massive biceps. Well, then go do some bicep curls. Like, what do you want from me? It's an easy thing. You pick things up and you put them down. If you want toned biceps, you pick up small things and you do it over and over and over again. And it's this process. I do an action, I lift weights, there's a reaction. My muscles tear, as my muscles tear, they say, you know what, we don't wanna feel this pain again. We're gonna grow back stronger. As they grow back stronger, the muscle grows. As the muscle grows, you get stronger and your muscles get bigger. And then if you want to continue that process, you have to keep lifting more weights and lifting heavier weights if you want that process to go. Then there's a reaction, lifting weights, reaction, muscle growing. And so when we think of even these traits within this series, if you want to grow in these areas, you have to do them. Say, well, I want to hear from God. Well, then read God's word. Like I, want, like, I want God to say something fresh to me. Why would he give you anything fresh when he already gave you everything that you need, but you're not reading it in the first place? You need to engage with God's word if you want to see God say stuff because he's already saying it. And the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit, which we're going to really dive into next week, is the Holy Spirit will bring back to remembrance that which you read in the appropriate times in which you need it, but you can't remember it if you never read it. So you need to get into God's word and you need to study God's word. And here's one of the things I want you to know about all this is that when you start the process, the target's big. How many of you could, if you're standing 20 feet from a barn, you could throw a water balloon and hit the barn? I think most of us could. But now if you start shrinking that barn, it becomes harder and harder. And if I make the water balloon smaller, it gets harder and harder. But here's what I want you to realize when you start it's actually pretty easy. You just have to start. So I want to dive into our first passage of scripture today. It's John 4, verses 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. God provides opportunities to catch our attention. And there's reasons why having videos or illustrations or me pushing Pastor Parker all of a sudden it triggers thoughts or imageries in your mind. It makes it hard to forget something because you're seeing something happen. There's an opportunity to catch your attention. And let's go back to this idea of the action versus reaction. She was just going out to get water. Why was she going out when she did? Because she was going out during the hot point of the day because she had a history, people knew her history, and she didn't want to hear the gossip going on about her. So not only is she avoiding the men, it's not only she's avoiding the women, she's going where it's uncomfortable. If you notice, she says, give me this water so I don't have to come here again. It wasn't so that she didn't have to do hard work again, it was I don't want to have to come here and run into people, just give me this water that's going to satisfy. And she's missing the point, she's missing what is really being offered here. But Jesus is there, and he didn't need to go here. As a Jew, he didn't need to talk to a Samaritan. As a man, he didn't need to talk to a woman in this culture, but he did it anyways because he cared about her. He intentionally went out of his way to be in this moment at that spot so that he could engage with her. There was an opportunity for her in this moment. And I want you to realize something. Just like in that moment where I first pushed Pastor Parker, we kind of get that imagery of God's looking to throw lightning bolts because I'm a sinner. Every single person in this room is either a sinner or a sinner saved by grace who has been given forgiveness by God Almighty. But in this moment where I just kind of shoved Pastor Parker and he wasn't ready for that, we kind of have this imagery that that's what God wants to do to me. He wants to expose my sin. He wants to, no, God wants to free you from your sin. Notice here, Jesus sets her up and then allows her to speak what that truth is. But then when she speaks her truth, what does Jesus come back with? The truth. That's one of the struggles within our culture is, well, this is my truth. That's your truth. This is, you can't have two truths. What color is the carpet? Is it blue or is it green? 
Or is it purple? Or is it yellow? No, the answer is blue. You can't, I mean, unless you're colorblind. If you're colorblind, then you can call it whatever name you see it as. <laughs> but when it comes to something that simple, you, you say, there's an answer. This is true. You can, you can say that the sky is made out of spaghetti. Doesn't mean it's true. Like, you be you, be you but that doesn't mean it's true. And so Jesus hears what her truth is, but then says, but this is who you are, because you are a child of God. And that what's amazing to me is she is face to face with Jesus and she has no clue. Go back to the imagery of a couple moments ago with the barn and throwing a water balloon and trying to hit it. She is standing right in front of it and she doesn't even know she has the water balloon in her hand. She doesn't know what she, she's like, imagine Jesus having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with you in person. And you say, you know what? One day when the Messiah comes, he's going to teach us everything. And the Messiah is right in front of you. And is engaging you. And is waiting for you to engage back. I mean, think again the Pastor Parker. I love the way, like, he had no idea what was happening. And I love the way he played it. Um, but this idea of like, well, if I push you, are you going to push me back? Like, what are you going to do? We have this like kind of dancing back and forth where, like, God, you're going to you're going to do something, but I don't know what you're going to do, so I'm going to stay a couple feet back so that I don't get hurt. Now let's fully engage with God Almighty. And here's the problem: is when we walk into a worship experience and we're worried about everything going else on in the room or what's going on in our life, we don't fully engage. And if we don't fully engage, here's the biggest problem: we kind of sit like tentatively, like I don't know what to do. God calls us to do one thing, engage with him and watch as he shows up and does what only God can do. Amen. But you hear what she said again, it was, but, uh, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus had to tell her that he was the Messiah. He makes an opportunity for her, reveals the target, and basically says, you've got a water balloon in your hand. I'm going to walk you right up to the barn, throw the water balloon at the barn. And there's moments in our life where we need God to be that deliberate with us. Because there's no other way we're going to accomplish the mission. But the beautiful thing is with God, is as soon as we start hitting the big target, he starts shrinking the target. And you say, well, that's not fair. God's trying to hide himself. God's trying to be tricky. No, God's trying to get you to focus in on him. Because if I'm always looking at the barn, I don't realize the fact that this little area of my life isn't right. And so God wants to work on this area now. And so he's trying to draw my attention to this area of my life that I need to work out. And as soon as that one's done, he's going to try and draw my attention over here. And he's trying to get to a very specific spot. And the longer we're walking with God, the easier it is for us to focus in on that little area. And we have to always be paying attention because if we're students of the Word of God, we can hear what God's speaking to us. As we get into next week and we talk about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will begin speaking to us and revealing what we're supposed to do, when we're supposed to do it, how we're supposed to do it. And all of a sudden, it draws us to that but we need to be in God's word. We need to be a student of God's word in order to fully do what he wants us to do. But we have to engage and we have to worship. We have to have the place of, of having the right heart. Because go back to what my descriptions were in the beginning. You might not want to raise your hands or sing or do anything there in worship because what are, what's everybody else going to think? I'm uncomfortable. It's not about you. Your heart's not in the right place. 
again, if you feel uncomfortable or judged by that, that's between you and God. Because I don't do a poll, I don't walk around and do a census of like, okay, who sang today? Was this your favorite song? Like, let me even just throw this out there. For everyone that I've ever heard make this statement of, I really wish we would have more uh, worship. We would have longer worship. We would have more songs. How do we show up at 1030? <laughs> no, don't, don't say the answer out loud. Raise your hand if you know who opened a prayer today. Like, raise your hand probably if you know who opened a prayer today. That means you're in the room at 1030. It's Pastor Parker. But here's the thing, is we need to kind of have that imagery saying, you know what, I want to fully engage, because we're waiting for someone to bring the water to us. God wants to bring us living water so that we are fulfilled and that we always, like that, that quench of, of, of thirst is gone. The problem is that so often, like, well, I haven't worshipped at all this week, and I'm going to show up a little bit late, and I want you to do more worship so that I feel filled up. Or filled up. You should already be filled up. Why are you coming to church dry? This is your moment to, to get even further encouraged. But if you're not worshiping during the week, it's like saying, I'm not going to drink water all week. When I get to church, I'm going to grab a coffee and a bottle of water, and I'll grab another coffee and a bottle of water when I go to leave, and that's going to sustain me liquid-wise for the entire week. That's stupid. Yes. <laughs> you need to drink more than just two bottles of water and two coffees on Sunday morning to sustain yourself all week. So why do we do that spiritually? I'm only going to read the Bible or hear the Word of God when I'm in church. I'm only going to worship and sing praises, but I can listen to sports radio. I can listen to my podcast. I can listen to whatever during the week, but I'm going to get filled up with worship. And, but they didn't play the songs I wanted to listen to today. <laughs> Worship's not for you. Yeah. I'm sorry. Worship is not for you. It's for an audience of one, and that's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And here's something that Jesus says in this uh, dialogue. That's what drives our attention to it is that we are to worship in spirit and the truth. Amen. You see, here's the thing. We keep coming back to this idea of when we share truth, we're supposed to do give truth in love. That if we only give truth and no love, it's like we're beating people upside the head with the Bible. If we only give love, but we don't give them God's truth, then yeah, you're really nice to people, but you're kind of sentencing them to a nice path up the, on the way to hell. So we have to give this combination of being uh, truth and love. And it's the same kind of thing when we worship God, though, is we have to worship in spirit and in truth. Because we worship in spirit means that everything, our emotions, everything that we are, we have to be sincere, we have to be motivated by the love of God because God's already shown up and done something for you. Or you're believing and expecting that he's going to. Because here's the beautiful thing. The more you start pushing back on God and you, you have an action and God has a reaction, all of a sudden you say, you know what? I can trust God. I don't know how he's going to get me through this one, but he's gotten me through this before. He's gotten me through that before. That's the beauty of a testimony is that when you have your own testimony, you can fall back of, hey, there is a struggle here. This was not going my way and God somehow got me through. Or you hear the testimony of somebody else like, well, if God can do that for you, then I think he can do it for me. And all of a sudden you build and grow your faith based off of what you've already seen and your emotions come into play. And you're able to say, you know what? I'm going to believe that God's going to do this. Worship cannot become mechanical. It's one of the reasons I like messing with all of you. It's the reason why we do communion, and we don't always have it. It has to be week one. And it has to be after the second song, after the second chorus. And then we all get up, and we do this, and we do that. No. 
Sometimes it's after the second song, sometimes it's after the third song, sometimes it's at the end of service, sometimes it's in the middle of the message, sometimes you have no idea what I'm going to do. And I like it that way. Because it doesn't become mechanical, it doesn't become ritualistic, it becomes a matter of saying we're now, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, we're going to celebrate and worship him. Because he is good. And so we don't become mechanical in that. But it's the same thing. We can't become mechanical in the way we read our Bibles. There are some times where you go through this season of like, I can read my Bible every single day, and I'm reading for an hour a day, and everything is great, and I'm learning so much, and then all of a sudden the next like, month hits, and I'm struggling to read my Bible. I change something up. There's moments where I will sit with my Bible, and I'll say, you know what, I'm going to go through three chapters, and it's easy. And there's moments where I'm like, okay, I'm going to go through two psalms, and as I go through two psalms, I'm going to notate kind of what I feel the theme is that God's speaking to me about that psalm in my Bible, and I leave notes of it in my Bible. There's sometimes where I'm trying to make connections between Old Testament and the New Testament because I need to keep changing things so I can keep growing. Mm -hmm. I cannot be happy with being in one spot and doing a mechanical process. And you have to be willing to say, you know what, wherever the Spirit may lead me, that's where I'm going. Mm -hmm. Because I have to worship in spirit. But then the flip of that is we have to be able to worship in truth. Now, on the surface, the concept of truth seems easy. It's, it's the word of God. Amen. It seems pretty easy. But all of a sudden, it's, it's easy to look at other people in the world and like, wow, they don't have the truth. And I have the truth. Guess what? You're a sinner as well. Amen. You're just happening to be saved by grace because you already understand what Jesus did. Mm -hmm. Can we stop beating people up about what they don't know yet? Imagine how many of you are very smart when it comes to calculus in the room. Okay, got a hand. Anyone else? Okay, we have one person in the room saying that they're smart with calculus. How many of you would say that if I put a calculus problem in front of you right now, you would be in that your salvation hinges upon answering that question correctly? You're like game over. Like that's me. Like I'll admit, my parents are in the room, so I'll admit to this. Um, I cheated one in one class in high school. The truth is coming out now. And it's almost been 20 years since this has happened. But it was calculus. They moved calculus from being an in-person class to being an online class. We had to watch videos as they explained how to do these problems. None of us had any clue in the room what we were doing. We spent the entire year playing games online. I got really good at playing online putt-putt. <laughs> If my salvation hinged upon winning at online putt-putt, like, I was getting to the front of the line to that. <laughs> but when it came to calculus, one of the other students in the class, his uncle worked for Lawrence Tech as a calculus professor. Our only grade was our test. So he would take the task back to, the, um, to his uncle and say, hey, this is our pre-test. Could you help me with all the answers and help me figure out how to show the work? And then we'd come back, we'd copy it, we'd fax it in. And then we all got about the same grade. I'm admitting it, it's on camera, but I've got my degree, so we're good. But here's the thing is, we can say that, and we can laugh about that, because some of you are like, I've been in that exact same situation in my past. Like, I didn't know this, or I didn't know. But when it comes to salvation, and it comes to the Word of God, we get upset with people because they don't know what truth is. And our answer is to yell at them, and scream at them, and like, you're going to go to hell. Well, duh. They don't know who Jesus is. So how about we help them instead of yelling at them? Yeah. Remember, truth in love. Not truth in with a threat that you're going to go to hell. 
We know what that, uh, the eternal destination is, but let's coax them into saying, we want you to have a relationship with Jesus, not fire insurance. We're pushing the wrong thing. It's not about avoiding hell. It's about spending eternity with Jesus. That is the point of things. Yes, there is that consequence, but that should not be our motivation for telling people the truth. Because if it is, we're like, I just did my part. Here's, here's the reason why I think we push that side of things and not so much the building relationship with Jesus, because that requires you to be a disciple and to make disciples. It's much easier to scare somebody into heaven instead of actually having to do life with them and help them meet who Jesus is. And that is what our call is, that when we worship in spirit and in truth, we worship in our freedom of our emotions, but also in the freedom of the truth of I know that this is true, I know what God's word says, and I know what I feel, but just because I feel something doesn't mean it's good. My feelings profit me nothing. It's all about his truth. And the quicker I can lay my truth down and pick up his truth, then all of a sudden I realize, well, this God is actually good. This God actually cares about me. That I might have a past. This, this woman in this passage, we don't get to know her name, but she has a past. She has multiple previous husbands, and the, uh, the guy she's living with right now, she's not married to. She's got a past. But Jesus is seeing past her past and then saying, now you need to go and do something about this. And what is her answer in this moment? When she starts recognizing who God is and what God is doing for her, she then goes in and tells the whole town about Jesus. A minute ago, she was going to the well in the middle of the day when it was hottest because she was avoiding people. Now she is an evangelist of the Messiah. It's amazing when we experience in spirit and truth and we really authentically worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, how the stuff of our past disappears. But if you keep holding on to it, like, this is my wound. Let me show you my wound. Let me show you. It's still oozing after 20 years. It's oozing because you keep picking it. How about you let it heal over and allow God to do something in you? So we need to grow in these seven traits that we're talking about. And so far, we've covered uh, spending time studying Scripture. We've spent time talking about studying the uh, the, the Word of God. We, we talked about serving in the church. We're now talking uh, here and worshiping in freedom and not caring what anybody else in the room thinks. And each week we've kind of went through, here's like a rubric. Here's what we want everyone in our church to be able to do. So what does this look like for us today? We want our preschool students to understand that worship shows God how much we love them. That they can know that they can worship God anytime and anywhere. Let me pause on this because this is one of the the nice things for Annie and I watching our girls right now is Quinn is making this turn from being preschool into three weeks into like the kindergarten. One of the things I love about Quinn is she can be playing whatever she's doing and all of a sudden she starts making up songs about God. And I love it. And some of you, you can think to maybe your children or grandchildren being in that age bracket where they just start like singing. Like if you put yourself back in kindergarten, every single person in this room thought they were an artist. Every single person in this room thought that they could sing. Somewhere along the lines, somebody told you that you couldn't. I remember where it happened for me with art. I believe it was second grade. We were drawing trees in art class, and my art teacher couldn't tell you her name to save my life today, but it impacted me enough that I remember this all these years later. We were drawing trees. We were supposed to do it this way. I was struggling with it, and so I drew what she called the cotton candy tree, where you kind of draw, like, here's the... Uh, the, the trunk of the tree, and then one of these numbers. And she called that cotton candy tree and said, you're doing that wrong. 
That's the only class in elementary school. Again, you gotta think how I operate, my kind of perfectionist brain, if I wanna get all A's. That's the only class in elementary school that I didn't get an A in. Because my second grade art teacher told me that I couldn't do art. And to this day, there, there's still moments like during COVID, I remember sitting down drawing some pictures and feeling amazed, like, I actually drew that? As a 35 year old, I'm like, maybe I could draw. Somebody told me that I couldn't, and so I gave up on it. So preschool students, I want them to know that they can worship God anytime and anywhere, and we don't shut them down, because if anything, we need to be making up songs and singing and worshiping God throughout the course of our day. And then for preschool students, we want them to be able to express gratitude to God. Elementary school students, that they are disciples that learn to respond to God in worship to show how much they love him and want to obey him. They understand that God is worthy of all our worship because of who he is. Disciples learn to praise God personally, participate wholeheartedly in worshiping with others, and offer their daily activities to God. Let me pause there for a moment. Some of you need to go back to one-on-one -on -one worship. Because we're expecting our elementary school students to do that, but we're struggling. I just want to raise your awareness. It's okay if you're still in the elementary version of this. That's good. Just graduate. Disciples learn to praise God personally, participate wholeheartedly in worshiping with others, and offer their daily activities to God. Disciples begin to develop an understanding of their identity in Jesus Christ and express gratitude to God using their own words. For our youth, we want them to be able to be disciples growing in their understanding of worship and respond obediently to God's love, pursuing Him and growing in their knowledge of God's character and nature. To be disciples that set an example in worship personally and corporately in their church community and understand that worship is a choice that allows them to overcome their current circumstances and emotions. Let me throw this one out here. Next, we're going to do a baby dedication. One of the things I always say during baby dedications is this. It's up to all of us, church, to help guide that young family and that young child into the ways of God. The easiest way to raise up a generation of preschool kids and elementary school kids and teenagers that worship God freely is if we as adults do it. Because if we can't do it or we won't do it, they won't either. And you, you'll make the, the statement, well, the world's a, a more difficult place, the world's a harder place, there's more, it seems like there's more sin in the world, then all the more that we have to raise up a generation that's not afraid of worshiping within the church. And we have to worship that way. Disciples grow in their identity in Jesus Christ, express gratitude, and experience God's healing from the past and fresh hope for their future. Disciples begin to develop a life of obedience to God, family, and those in authority by demonstrating God's characteristics regularly through words, actions, and attitudes. And then that brings us to the adults. Disciples offer worship to the Trinity with deep respect and continually grow in their knowledge of God's character and nature. Disciples actively worship God in private moments and with their local church community and choose to worship even when circumstances and emotions bring great distractions. Disciples find their full identity in Jesus Christ. Let me say that one again. Their identity is in Jesus, not of anything of this world, not of any label, not of anything that somebody speaks upon you, in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone, and express gratitude for experiencing God's healing from the past and fresh hope for their future. And then finally, disciples grow in obedience to God and draw closer to God and each other, exemplifying God's characteristics regularly through words, actions, and attitudes. That being said, I want the worship team to go ahead and come forward. I want to share something that 
I saw a clip of yesterday. I don't even know the pastor's name. So normally if I'm taking something that I've heard from somebody else, I like crediting them. I don't know who it was. It was a quick video. And as soon as I saw it, it disappeared. And I didn't catch the name, but I caught the heart of it. How many of you have ever heard this statement before that when somebody accepts Jesus, that the angels are rejoicing in heaven? Yes, yes. And like, give me a real hand raise. Like, the, 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 we're talking about worshiping and freedom. You've heard that statement before that like somebody comes to Christ and the angels are worshiping and rejoicing. That's not scriptural. I'm about to blow your mind. It sounds good, but what I'm about to read to you sounds a whole lot better. So this is Luke 15, 1 through 10. This is where it comes from. Because remember, when we study God's word, context, context, context. So this is the beginning of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawn near to hear him, who was him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Because Jesus is speaking the truth and love and worships the Father in spirit and in truth. So he tells them this parable. What many of you having a hundred, uh, I'm sorry, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Pause. Who's doing the call to rejoicing? The individual who found his lost sheep. And he calls everybody else in the area, come rejoice with me because I found my sheep. So verse seven, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. It goes on to verse eight, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Pause. Who's doing the rejoicing? The woman who found her lost coin. And then she calls everybody else who's around, rejoice with me. But here's this uh, verse. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's not joy from the angels of God. It's joy before the angels of God. So who is doing the rejoicing? God the Father. Want a little bit more proof? I won't read the full thing, but what's the next parable? Prodigal son. The son goes off, the son messes up his entire life, comes back saying, well, maybe I could just be a servant in his house. And what does the father do? He is there waiting, and when he sees his son coming, he runs after his son. It's the father who's doing the rejoicing. And I think there's one reason why we misquote this in, within Christianity, within pastors, misquote this. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What does the serpent say to Eve? Did God really say that? The serpent twists scripture to prove his point. Saints, purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. So why would he do this? Because he wants to change our imagery of God the Father. God is not sitting on a throne disinterested as the angels are worshiping. 
because we know when we're about to go back into the song, the angels are worshiping, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But when one comes back, just like the shepherd who found his sheep, just like the woman who found her coin, just like the father who found his son, God's getting up off the throne celebrating another one. Another one came home. Another one came home. Another one came home. And he is engaged in worship. He is not a disinterested king. He is ready to push. He is ready to challenge. He wants to bring forgiveness to people so that they can be reunited with him. But this is where it starts, people. It's up to you in the context of even this room, freely worshiping God. In a moment, we're going to go back into to worship. The altar space is going to be open. Stay where you are. Come up here. Raise your hands. Keep them down. Jump up and down. I don't really care. But whatever you do, you need to be worshiping in complete and total freedom. To the point where if all of a sudden I just come back up and say, worship team, like, stop singing. I want it to be a thunderous, uh, a choir that's all here, worshiping, not caring if they're on key, off key, uh, singing in a different language. I don't really care. If you've got your prayer language that we're going to talk about next week with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, bust that out. I don't really care what you do, but you need to have freedom in worship right now. Because it is not about you, it's not about me, but it is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? Amen. All right, I want you to go ahead and stand up. I'm going to pray, and then they're going to go into the song. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you are God. I thank you that you are good. I thank you for what Jesus did on the cross. Lord, I thank you that you are sitting in heaven right now, ready that if anyone were to surrender their lives and say, I want this relationship with Jesus, that you would stand up off of that throne and you would celebrate. You're not looking to throw lightning bolts. You're looking to bring people back into the family. Lord, that you are speaking your truth. You have given us your truth that you gave us Jesus to make up where all the spots that we would fall short Lord time we know is short so it is more important than ever that we begin to worship in freedom Lord just like Jesus is the word of God and he is the word that came flesh that we have the ability to speak out of our mouths words that would build up or words that would tear down Lord I pray that every single word that comes out of our mouth is a word that would build up ourselves and others around us that would lead people back to repentance would lead people to forgiveness would lead people to you God so that they could be a part of the family of God Lord I pray that you would move in a mighty way Lord I pray for each and every individual in this room if there is anything that is a distraction in their mind right now if there's anything that is a worry and anxiety a fear Lord I pray that you would throw that away right now Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room that if there is sickness in their life right now, whether themselves or a family member or a friend or a colleague, Lord, I pray that you would begin pouring out your healing on those situations. Lord, I pray if there's strain in family relationships that you would begin touching those things and healing those right now. Lord, that you would allow us to worship you freely, knowing that you can move in us in a mighty way that we could never see in any other capacity other than you, God. So, Lord, I pray as we worship your name that is holy, Lord, that the sound that comes out would be a sweet sound to your ears and that you would be encouraged and that you would love it and that you would engage with us as we push against you, Lord, that you would push back as we put an action forward, that there would be an uh, equal reaction where you would pour out your kingdom. You would pour out a little bit of heaven on us this morning and move in a way that only you can move. In Jesus' name, amen.